just before just introduct, in, introducing the subject of heaven, you know, I'm thinking about life this week. So as I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be preaching about heaven, but I'm thinking about earth. And I'm thinking about the pain and the suffering and the brokenness and the temptation and the sin and the hardships and the trials that never stop. They never stop. If we knew the pain and the suffering, we saw a little three and a half minute video about Syria and the persecuted church and what they go through. And if we would, if we would, if we could hear and we could see the level of brokenness in our world, it would break us. It would break us. I was coming back the other day, Thursday night, Thursday night, coming back from a passion worship concert in Mandeville and I it's midnight. I dropped off the school van at the school. We had transported some worship team members there. And so I'm driving home and I turn on my, where my radio was on. It was on a news station. And the newscaster was talking about some abuse that had taken place to children in, uh, in a foreign country. And that they had brought these men to justice. And it was a certain type of abuse that was taking place. And that that they had the youngest age of the children that were abused were 18 months old. And when he said it, I've never felt this before. I never felt like this before in my life. I literally got nauseated and I started gagging as I'm driving. And I felt like if I'd have had food in my stomach, it would have all came out. It just hit me at my core. And I just spent two hours worshiping the Lord, his beauty and his majesty with 2,000 people. And it was wonderful. And then I end my night with that reality of the brokenness of our society, the depravity that we experience, the pain, the suffering. And if, we, if I went and I talked to all of you about your specific situations that you're in, and we heard it over and over again, I let you talk and I let you talk and the next person talk and it would it would just build this sense of frustration this sense of this inward groaning oh God when is this going to end when is this going when is there going to be relief from the pain and it's very reminiscent of Romans chapter 8 Romans 8 verses 18 through 25 this is the apostle Paul speaking he's speaking about this subject about the fact that we live in a broken world the fact that we live in a cursed creation because of the fall of man, because of Adam and Eve's sin and the fallenness of humanity, because we are all born in sin. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul is saying that the earth itself, creation itself, wants to have the freedom and the glory that the sons of God are going to get on that day when we receive our resurrected body, that the creation itself groans for redemption. And then verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope we were saved. That's how we got saved. We believed in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and the reality that by, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, he is securing for us an eternal home with him. This is the hope. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope, we hope for what we do not see. And we wait for it with patience. With patience. Sometimes it's difficult to have patience when, when, when we're waiting and we see the pain and the suffering. And on that backdrop, with this backdrop, this reality of our pain and our suffering and this inward longing and groaning that we have in our hearts for heaven, for redemption, for no more tears, for no more suffering, for no more temptation, for no more sin. With this as our backdrop, we want to talk about heaven. What does the Bible say about heaven? What does the Bible say about heaven? So considering Romans 8 here, I have three things that I want us to talk about this morning. The first one is this. Heaven is for real. Heaven is for real, right? There's a book that was written and a movie that was made. I'm not endorsing the book nor the movie. Um, books and movies that are, books that are written, movies that are made about subjective reality cannot be trusted. The book that has been written that reveals objective truth that can be trusted is God's word. And so a little boy who came back and told us that heaven is for real, I believe he's, believe he's right, but I believe he's right because I know what God's word says about heaven. So that's what we want to look at. We want to look at what does God's word say about heaven? What is heaven? Where, when, when are we going to go to heaven? What's going to happen when, when we die? And so what does scripture teach us about heaven? What happens when a believer dies? What happens when a Christian dies? Well, first of all, do you remember back in Genesis 2-7? God created us, and it says this, And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So where did we come from? We came from dust. I just have to say, my wife is a beautiful work of dust. <laughs> She's beautiful dirt. Some of you are okay, not as much as my wife. We came from the dust of the ground and God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Well, what does it say in Ecclesiastes 12, 7? It says, and the dust, what does it do? Returns to the earth. So we're birthed in dust and when we die, we, they stick us in the ground and they throw dirt over our face and our bodies decay. We die. Right? So that's, that's what happens to our physical body. And I just want to say, no one is exempt from death. We all die. You have an appointment. My wife has an appointment for a, doctor, uh, a doctor's appointment tomorrow. But she has a different appointment, like we all have, with death. We don't know when that appointment is. We're believing that we'll be able to live on this earth as long as we possibly can to spend time with our loved ones, our family, and our friends, and to do what God's called us to do. But the reality is, is that we don't know when our appointment is. The only people that escape physical death on this earth are going to be the ones that are alive during the time of the rapture, are going to be the believers that are alive during the time of the rapture. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are alive during the time of the rapture, you will escape the first death. And you will go up to be with the Lord. But if we're not alive during the time of the rapture, you have an appointment. And we will return to the dust. Our physical body is going to die. But for the believer, what happens? So our physical body dies. But what happens after our breath? 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8 says this. It says, so we are always confident 
knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be, say it with me, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So what happens when, when you take your last breath as a Christian or a non-Christian, and you take your last breath as a non-Christian, you go to the dust. But for the believer who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, when you take your last breath, absent from your physical body means you are present with the Lord. You are with God. You are with Christ in heaven. You're with Christ in heaven. We see this again in Philippians 1, 21 through 24. Apostle Paul says again, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Look, that is such an amazing thing to say. How many of us would even say that right now? To die is gain? Oh, no, wait a minute. I've got, I've got so much to do. I have so much to be a part of. My family, my friends, my circle of influence. To die is gain. But if I live on, on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, to die and go to heaven or to stay here and work for the Lord. Having a desire to depart and, and what? Be with Christ. So when, when we depart, we are with who? With Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. To stay in the flesh is needful for those that you are called to lead and love and be involved with in their life and the responsibilities God's given you. It's needful for them that you would be here. But when we depart, we are going to be with Christ in his presence. When believers die, our physical body returns to the ground and our spirit is united with Christ in heaven. But this is not our final destination. This, that, this is what theologians would call the present heaven or the intermediate state. It means that when we die as Christians right now, before the rapture, our physical body goes to the ground, our spirit is united with Christ in heaven, but that's not our final destination. And this is where confusion comes in because when most people think about heaven, they think about, hey, when I die, I go to heaven, I'm going to float around in the sky like an angel, I'm going to play my harp, and, and, and then we kind of get depressed a little bit. We're like, wait a minute, forever is a long time to fly in the sky playing a harp. And when I talk to my kids about heaven, they kind of have this assumption that's what it's going to be like. And they're actually kind of like scared about heaven. Like just this idea that it's just forever with Jesus. What does that mean? And so it can be scary. I remember as a child just being scared of the idea of forever in heaven. But that's not the end of the story. I want you to read with, with us, uh, read, read with me, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. This is a picture of what is going on in what would be called the present heaven. All of those who have fallen asleep, died in the Lord. This is a picture of what's going on with them right now. It says, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred like we talked about earlier, for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony, they shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Wow. It's pretty profound. The people that have been martyred for the faith are in heaven with the Lord, and it's like they're looking down and they're seeing, Lord, look at the injustice. Look at these people that are blaspheming your name. When are you going to bring justice? And he says this, verse 
verse 11, then a white robe was given to each of them and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. So I don't know exactly, there's not a ton of details about what the present heaven will look like. So for those of us who die before the rapture and who are Christians, but I know that these guys in the present heaven, they're, they're looking down. And they're seeing the injustice and they're seeing the pain and the suffering and they're crying out to the Lord, God, bring justice. Vindicate your name. Vindicate us. But we have a, bigger, a better picture of what's going to happen later. So here's the progression. You die as a believer. Body goes to the ground. Your spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. And then the rapture of the church will take place in the Lord's timing. And then scripture tells us in Revelation that all of the believers that have gone to heaven in the rapture and all the, all the believers that have died and their spirits have gone to be with the Lord, it says that we will come to the earth, this earth, and rule and reign with the Lord for a thousand years. His thousand year reign. And then it says, after the final judgment, the great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ, after the thousand year reign, God will bring judgment and God will cast all of those who have rejected Jesus into the lake of fire. And then all of those who have believed in the name of Jesus Christ, whether it's this earth now, whether it's after the rapture, during the tribulation period, all of those who place their faith in Jesus, it says that God will destroy by fire this earth. This present earth that we live on right now will be destroyed by fire. And then it says in Revelation 21 that he will create a new earth. A new heavens and a new earth. Let's see what, the, let's see what that says in Revelation 21. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God's going to dwell with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. And the former things have passed away. So God's going to create a new earth. So what, what's, gonna, what's our eternal destiny ultimately going to be? It's an existence on a new earth. So what's that going to look like? This is when our imagination can kind of start to, our wheels start spinning. So what, what is an earth? This is earth, right? What's a new earth? It's all the good things that we experience on this earth, but perfect. Clearly in scripture, we know in other writings in scripture that we will not be married or given in, in marriage. But I believe that I'm going to know my wife and she's going to know me and we're going to be in relationship, but we won't have a marriage relationship like we have now. We know that there won't be any sun or moon or foreign lights, that God will be the light in the midst of his people on the new earth. I believe there's going to be food. What, what, what happened in the Garden of Eden? He told them, be fruitful, multiply. And then he said, he said that they could eat of all the trees in the garden except for one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. So there was food that would be eaten in a perfect state of existence for God's cre creation. So when God recreates and gives us a new earth, hey, I think we're going to eat. I don't think we're going to shoot deer. Because what I just read in Revelation 21 says there's no more death. Now, I believe we're going to play golf. <laughs> and other sports. But all you hunters, I hate to disappoint you. 
But we're going to be, I believe, vegetarians in heaven. We're not going to be killing animals. Maybe there's target shooting, Matt. Maybe we'll have target shooting. Me and Matt have talked about this. There's going to be some target shooting. But hey, I believe there will be athletics. What perverts athletics? Pride, right? Well, there's not going to be any pride. What's wrong with competition? What's wrong with, what's wrong with, what's wrong with that? The apostle Paul spoke about and he compared our relationship, our journey with Christ to an athletic race. He shed it in a positive light. So athletics in, in the new earth? Hey, I'm playing golf. At least I'm believing right now that I am going to be. So, so these are just some pictures of what it's going to be like. But we're going to have a resurrected body. After the, after the rapture, we're going to have resurrected bodies that will be united with our spirits. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall not die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead who died before the rapture in Christ and those who died outside of Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body will put on imperishable, and you will either be prepared to spend eternity with God or be prepared to spend eternity in hell with Satan. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So as it says in Romans 8, we groan inwardly for this redemption. No more sickness, no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want to read this quote to you by John Bloom from Desiring God. He's a writer for their website, and he says this, There is a more important reason God doesn't give us more details. Eternal life is more about a person than a place. What will make the kingdom of heaven so heavenly to us will not be the glorious phenomenon of the new creation or the rich rewards we will receive as inexpressibly wonderful as they will be. The heaven of the age to come, the treasure of treasures will be God himself, knowing and being known with the one from whom all blessings flow. And that's what heaven is all about. It's being with God forever, our creator, and worshiping him for all eternity. So the first, my first thought is this, is that heaven's for real. Scripture tells us about heaven. If we trust God's word about salvation, we trust God's word about creation, and we need to trust God's word about eternity, about heaven and about hell. It's true. We're stuck in, the, in a realm that we only believe what we can touch, what we can see. And we live under a blindness. It's a bewitching blindness that keeps us from seeing the real world. Heaven is real. And one of these days, we will be snapped out of this blindness that we all live under as human beings. And for those of you who may not believe in God, may not believe that God is real, and you think this is all a fairy tale, one day when you snap out of that blindness and you see that God is real, that heaven is real, when you are before his throne, my prayer is that you will have before you died made a decision to place your trust in Jesus Christ. We all will snap out of this bewitching, this bewitching blindness that we're under. But we need to snap out of it now. 
Second thought I want us to talk about is this, is that heaven is not our default destination. Heaven is for real. People will go there forever. But heaven is not humanity's default destination. If you were to ask most people that live on the earth today or would have lived on earth, you ask them, are you going to go to heaven? What do you think they're going to say? Well, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Absolutely, I'm going to, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to be with God forever, yeah. And then you say, well, why do you believe that? And what do you think their answers typically are? Well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Now, they will admit, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. Not that bad of a person. But what are they basing their confidence in, or their trust in? Their ability to be not that bad and to not do bad things. To be basically good and not that bad. Well, you know what? Scripture, scripture doesn't give us that picture. Scripture gives us a picture of the depravity of humanity because we are born under the curse of sin. Romans chapter 3, 23 says this. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what does that mean? It means that all of us, in all of history, all of humanity, those that have lived, those that are living now, and those that will live before Christ returns, all of us have sinned. And why have all of us sinned? Not, we, we, don't, we, we don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We disobey because we have a disposition towards disobedience. My children, as beautiful as they are, they were born with a disposition towards disobedience and sarcasm and rebellion. And I'm trying to work it out of them right now. And you didn't have, I didn't have to teach that to them. They figured it out on their own. I mean, I, they're not in here. But they could tell you stories, and I could tell you stories. That, look, at 18 months old, Two years old, they know that they don't want to obey me. It's instinctively in them. Where did that come from? People say, well, well, you know, people just believe certain things and do certain things and become certain things because of how they're raised. No, I didn't raise my child to rebel against me. I didn't want them to rebel against me. It came natural. And all of us were the same. We all were the same. This whole idea of, of nurture, this idea that, that well, people just believe in a God because they're raised to believe in a God, or they just believe this belief system because they were raised to, be, to believe in it. I believe that all of us are hardwired with rebellious hearts against God. And none of us had to be taught that. We're all sinners who sin because we have a sinful nature, because we're born in sin. And what, is, what does that position leave us in? Short of the glory of God. So when people say, hey, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm basically good, what are they doing? They're comparing themselves to the wrong standard. What is the right standard to compare ourselves to? The perfect holiness and glory of God. So what that means is, is that every single person that has lived or will live, we, don't all, we not only fall short, <laughs> we fall woefully short. Of God's glorious standard. That means that all of us are guilty before God. All of, us, all of us instinctively know that we do not measure up. The Apostle Paul deals with this in the book of Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. And he makes the case that all are guilty. And it culminates, it culminates in chapter 3 when he says, For all are, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But before that, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and portions of 3, he makes the case that everybody, the the non-religious, the person that says, well, I'm just not going to believe in a God. There is no God. This is all made up. They're guilty. 
And why are they guilty? Because they have ignored the obvious reality that there's a God. So you say, well, why should they be held accountable if they don't believe in a God? Romans chapter 1 says that God has made it abundantly clear that he's real. By the complexities of creation. You would be a fool to look at the order in our world and in our human body and say that order came from chaos. Have you ever just decided, hey, let me, let me put a bunch of engine car, engine parts on my garage. And I'm going I'm to put a, some explosives all around it. We're going to blow it up. And I'm going to have a, my, you know, the car that I've always dreamed of. You know, right? It's just going to explode and then order is going to come. No one, would, no one would believe that. But for some reason, scientists will teach our kids from a very young age that everything that you see, everything that you see was at one point reduced to a single particle. And that it exploded one time and then everything has been expanding and evolving over billions and billions of years. And all of a sudden we get this perfect ordered universe. Are you serious? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe, do people really believe that? that? That cannot be true. Design screams there is a designer. Order declares there is a creator. It's obvious. And that's why scripture says only a fool says in his heart there's no God. So Paul makes the case, hey, they're guilty. Because I, even if they did not believe in Jesus, even if they just rejected it on his face, because I made it clear that they're not here by accident, they're guilty. Then the immoral pagan, he deals with them in Romans 1. The ones that just says, you know what? You know, we're just, forget it all. We're going to live like we want to live. We're going to suppress this truth of the reality of God. We're going to suppress that truth in unrighteousness, and we're going to live however we want to live. And we're going to live in sexual immorality. We're going to worship trees. We're going to worship animals. We're going to worship all kind of false gods because we are going to be a God unto ourselves." And Paul says, God says, you're guilty. And then he he doesn't leave the religious people by themselves. He gets into chapter 2 and 3 and he says, you religious person, you Jew, you religious person, thinks you're going to get into heaven because you're God's special person. Because you're good, because you are religious. And he says, culminating in in chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 takes it even further and some more of Paul's writings. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, read this, by nature, children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. So Paul kicks it up a notch in Ephesians. He says, not only have you sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you are dead in your trespasses and sins. It's even uh, even more of a darker picture. It means there's there's no hope in and of yourself. Dead people can't raise themselves up, can they? They have to be called out. Romans 6.23 says this, says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It means that When we live in a rebellious state against God, we ignore the reality that he's real, that he is God, and we reject his son, Jesus, and we position ourselves in opposition against him. We live as a God unto ourself. We get a paycheck. And that paycheck is death, spiritual death, separation from God. 
Our default destination is not heaven. We were born in sin with a tendency towards unrighteousness. Sin doesn't make us sinners, but we sin because we are sinners. So where's the good news? Where's the good news? This is kind of discouraging a little bit, right? You know what? And that's the route you have to go. You can't get to the good news until you understand the weight of the real situation that you're in. The good news is this. The second half of Romans. The first that I read there in Romans 3.23. The second half says this. It says, but. Say but with me. But. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then you look back at Ephesians 2 where it says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins and we are by nature children of wrath. Look at the, look at the next verses after that in verse 4 and 5. Say, say, say it with me. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The gospel in two words. Somebody ever wants you to preach the gospel to them? You can do it in two words. You just say, but God. But God. I was lost. I was headed to hell. I was full of sin and iniquity and rebellion against God. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I wanted nothing to do with him. But God, who is rich in mercy. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is the message that we herald all around our community, in our homes, on our work, on our jobs. This is the one that we herald when we travel to India. We minister to those that don't know Jesus through medical missions. This is the message that we herald, the good news that God has given us a free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ as our Lord. And what takes place when we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21, Paul again writing says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. As Christians, we get to make, God makes his appeal through us. Have you ever stopped to think about that? How phenomenal that is? Think about it. Sinless perfection. Because of our faith in him. Came and dwelled on the inside of imperfection. And he says, I want you to take your imperfect lips that have not been redeemed yet. You don't have your resurrected body yet. You have imperfect lips that still sin. And I want you to be my ambassador. I want you to speak for me. Isn't that phenomenal? When I read that, I just think, oh my, oh my, God, you, uh, you let me speak for you. And it's not just me that gets to speak for God. It's not just a pastor that gets to speak for God. It's, it's you. You, as a believer, carry the very life of God on the inside of you. And God is calling you. He's, he's imploring to you, be my ambassador. Open your lips as flawed as they are, as imperfect as they are. And my spirit will clothe your words. And people will come to, to salvation in his name. Isn't that beautiful? For our, and here's the gospel in verse 21. This is what takes place when you place your faith in Jesus. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, sinless perfection, so that in him, in Christ, we might become 
the righteousness of God. Amen? That's what happens at salvation. Heaven is not our default destination. We are born, we're children of wrath by nature. And we must place our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we do place our faith in Jesus Christ, God takes the very perfect righteousness of the innocent Son of God and he places it on us and in us. And he begins the process of changing us from the inside out. Amen? Amen. Third thing I want us to talk about as we're concluding with this, this final point. Eternal realities should change our earthly priorities. Eternal realities should change our earthly priorities. Heaven is for real. It's for real. People will literally be there one day. The lake of fire, hell, is for real. And people will be there one day. And the reality of eternity should change our earthly priorities. We should live differently because of that reality. I've heard, heard a preacher say or ask in a Q&A, somebody asked this pastor, are you ever comfortable with the, the doctrine of hell? He said, no, I'm never comfortable with it. I'm never at ease. Like, yeah, that, yeah, yeah it's true. But I never feel perfectly okay with it because it, it should make us feel burdened in our heart that this is a reality. We should never be the same whenever we see that eternity is real. The seductive lie of the enemy, however, is this. This is the seductive lie of the enemy. They're going to put it on the screen for us. The seductive lie of the enemy is that the most important thing in this life is our temporary happiness. That's it. That's the lie. The most important thing in this life is our temporary happiness. Satan has used this lie from the very beginning. Let's look at Genesis Put the text up from Genesis. This is Satan in the form of a serpent speaking to Eve. And he says this, For God knows that when you eat of the fruit that he said not to eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Look at this, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, it was a delight, and it was to be desired. It was good. It was a delight. It was a delight. And it was to be desired. Temporary happiness. Temporary satisfaction. Take it, Eve. I know God said, I know God said not to eat it. This is God's rules. These are his laws. I know this is what he says. But you can have temporary happiness right now. God is withholding something from you. It's the lie of the enemy. He's withholding something from you. There's something good outside of God. Take the bait. Eat it. Take it. It's good. It's to be desired. Scripture says that sin is pleasurable for a season. It is. It's to be desired. So, so Satan, Satan lies. He says that it's going to make you wise. And so she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her. And, and he ate. And so it's the same lie he started with. It's the same lie he continues to lie. Not only to non-believers but to believers. We believe the same lie. So how does he lie to non-believers? Let's look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, Satan, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's blinded them to keep them 
He doesn't want them to see the glorious light of the gospel. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So how does he do it? How does he keep the unbeliever from seeing the glorious light of the gospel? Let's look at, let's look at this. He distracts them with lesser lights. He wants them to see. God wants every unbeliever to see the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what does Satan do? He distracts them with lesser lights. He distracts them with lesser things that are often good things that have been given to them by God. Their breath was given to them by God. Their children was given to them by God. But he wants to keep them right here, right now. He tries to squeeze out of their thinking any thoughts of their own mortality. He tries to get them to believe that all there is to this life is here and now. And he distracts them from seeing the image of God manifestly seen in creation. That's what he does. And you know what? He is succeeding. He is succeeding. But how does he lie to the believer? How does Satan use that same lie that the most important thing in life life is my temporary happiness? How does he lie to us? Us who have seen the glorious light of the gospel and he's transformed us. How does he lie to us? I want you to hear me. I believe this is true. He raises up false teachers who turn Christianity on its head. False teachers who primarily preach a self-focused message. And this is what they preach. Everything is focused on the here and now. How can I have a better... And you fill in the blank. And they make it out to be that this is what life is all about. And they don't leave room. There's no, there is no room for the exaltation of Christ for the glory of his name. They leave no room for suffering, for the reality that there are Christians in Syria that are suffering. There's Christians around the world that are being persecuted. There's no paradigm in their system of belief, these false teachers' system of belief, for the reality that Christians, that in your life, it doesn't always work out the way you wish it would in this life. And so what that does is is it, it, it gets you to believe that Christianity is all about me. It's all about me getting from one success to the next success to the next success to the next victory. Is that the culmination of the Christian life? Is that, is that why we exist? They leave no room for the exaltation of Christ and the glory of his name and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Eternal realities are replaced with temporary earthly distractions. In this system of belief, God exists for me. And listen, I am right there with you. I struggle. I struggle to not get distracted. I struggle to not keep my eyes focused on on, on, on eternal realities. We have busy lives. God's called us to be husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and he's given us responsibilities on jobs it's so easy just just to get numb just to grow numb and 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 this this picture this wailing wall and and the video in syria and the persecuted church it's like it's like it kind of jars us a little bit wait a minute there's actually bad things going around the world for people that believe in the name of jesus and 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 i think we need that it's like we need we need the cobwebs to be cleared out of our thinking from time to time to remind us that, hey, you know what? It's, it's, it's not about, the Christian life is just not about my happiness. The Christian life is about you 
glorifying the name of Jesus. And do you know how God's name is most glorified in your life? I believe the number one way the name of Jesus is most glorified in the life of, of a believer is in the middle of suffering, is in the middle of pain. What do you say? What do you do? How do you respond? You respond by lifting your hands and praising a holy God, even when it doesn't make sense. God's name is glorified. God's name is, you glorify God in the middle of cancer, in the middle of divorce, in the, in the middle of a financial downturn, in the middle of addiction, in the middle of rejection, of abuse. You say, God, I don't understand. Just like Psalm 42, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? But I speak to my soul and I declare hope in God. Amen? Forgot to tell you the title of my message. The title of my message is A Heavenly Vision. A Heavenly Vision. You know, you heard the phrase, don't be too heavenly minded or you'll be of no earthly good. I hate that phrase. We're, we're concluding here. Do you know what I think the phrase should be? It should be being heavenly minded empowers us to do earthly good. Being heavenly minded empowers you to do earthly good. So what is happening right now in heaven? What's going on right now? We need a heavenly vision. We need to see, glimpse what's happening right now in heaven. What does the real world look like right now? Just stand your feet with me as we read Revelation chapter 4. This is a picture of what's taking place around the throne of God. It says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with the one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, it, it was at, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on, on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, what do they do? They fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. Amen? When we 
When we have a heavenly vision, everything changes. Everything, your whole life changes. When you have a heavenly vision, when you see God for who he is, if you're a non-believer, everything changes. Because now, now you can no longer live the same because you've seen him. And as a believer, when you see God for who he is, you see the realities of eternity, it changes the way we live. It changes our perspective. So what I want us to do, we're going we're gonna to end with this song. We're going to end singing this song about building our life on the foundation of God's love and singing holy to him. So hey, look, let's just come. If you want to just come down front, let's worship together this holy God. Just come down front with me. We worship you, Lord. transform our hearts, that we would no longer live the same. Pray, Lord, that those that don't know you here this morning, I pray that they would make the decision to surrender by faith to Jesus Christ. God, I pray for us as Christians, God, that we would not live the same, that we would, if need be, God, that we would reprioritize. Maybe some of us here this morning, we've been convicted. We need to reprioritize our life. 
God, make it so. Lord, change our hearts. Motivate us to do that. We give you the glory. We give you the honor. And one day, one day we will join the 24 elders and we will join the angels around your throne and we will sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen. Amen. All right. I love you guys. You guys are dismissed.